Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. segment of Forward 40. I am very much pleased to have our next guest with us. I truly admire her. Um, A colleague of mine recommended her on the show, and uh, I'm pleased that she accepted the invitation. So with us today, we have Sheena Collier, who is the founder and CEO of the Collier Connection and Senior Economic Growth Advisor at the Boston Greater Chamber of Commerce. So welcome, Sheena. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you with us. Um, I this is the first guest that I that I have that is actually not currently in in New York, um, but you are a New York native, right? Yes, I'm from Albany, New York. So little upstate or the capital. Um, <laughs> A lot of New York City folks forget that, but <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, when people say like, "Oh, you're from New York," the first thing it's just like, "Okay, New York City," or but yes, you say, you definitely say, oh, get points. You you're from the capital. <laughs> they say, "What borough are you from?" Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're currently based in Boston, and for those that maybe have never ventured to Boston or um, are considering a move or have studied there? Like, what brought you to the area? Yeah, so I left Albany um, when I was um, 17. So about, well, this is, this is, will make, I think, um, wow, 19 years uh, that I left to go to college in Atlanta. So I went to Spelman College and then, I came up here in 2004 to attend Harvard Graduate School of Education and get my master's. Nice. Nice. And then that transition, um, I know, like, so I went to another women's college, went to Smith, Northampton, so the western um, side of the, the state of Massachusetts. And anytime that I've been in Boston, well, first of all, anyone that was from New York and when I said that I was going to Smith, it was just like, oh, you're in Boston. Um, so similar mm-hmm. to like the, the effect of when you say you're from New York, it's just like, oh, what borough? Um, mm-hmm. You are in the the city. Like, what was that transition like and how did that influence the work that you um, have launched with the, the Collier Connection? Yeah, it's funny because actually, as you know, Harvard is in Cambridge and and um, people here, Bostonians, um, probably just like New Yorkers, New York City folks are very clear about what's Boston and what's not. <laughs> when I moved here, I would say I moved to Boston as well. And people would be like, no, you don't live in Boston, you live in Cambridge. And, and at that time, it, I was like, whatever, it's all the same thing. But until I moved to Boston and I was like, oh, yes, it's very different. Um but I will say for overall, you know, initially coming here, I had a really hard transition. So Spelman is a women's college and also a historically black um, college and university. Yeah. And even in Albany, which is not a predominantly black city, I was in the spaces that I was in where my elementary and middle school were. Mm-hmm. My high school was pretty mixed. And so coming to Harvard and coming moving to the greater Boston area was really my first time being in the minority. Mm. And I had a, um, a, it was, it was challenging. I actually came up here to visit Harvard a couple months before I accepted my acceptance to come And my mother and brother were with me. And I looked to my mother and was like, Oh yeah, no, I'm not going to be coming here. <laughs> we, we were at this reception and there was barely any black people there. My, you know, my mother um, looked at me and was like, girl, it's Harvard. Like, she was just like, I don't even, I don't care if you're the only black person in this place. Like, 
you got accepted into Harvard. Like, there's no way you're not going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the master's programs at the at the ed school, the education school where I went, are only a school year. It's a very intense okay. school year, but they're only one year. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was. So you're. I was adjusting to this new place on top of a very heavy course load on top of also doing an internship. And so I really, um, it took me a while to adjust. I was actually telling someone yesterday that by the time I adjusted, I, it was like time to graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but one of the things I do credit the experience with is really taking me out of my comfort zone, which I, which I believe has helped to shape, um, the person that I am now and the work that I'm doing now. Um, because I wasn't really involved when I was younger at Spelman R in high school. I wasn't in clubs. I wasn't doing a lot of extracurricular things that weren't academic, um, academically related. Mm-hmm. And coming up here, and I really strongly believe this about as a way to really succeed in Boston or, or um, you know, learn to like Boston, is really you have to create city that you want to live in. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, after being here for a while, I realized like, okay, I can continue to complain. And, but if I'm going to make the best of the situation, I need to figure out what is missing here for me. And then how can I create it? And, you know, that's, that's interesting that, you know, you, you mentioned that prior to this experience, uh, you weren't as engaged in things that were, weren't academic but you saw an opportunity and instead of like being on the sidelines, um, being critical and overly critical of it, you created the solution. So um, you definitely told it as being a super connector. Um, so what kind of was the, the genesis of, of that, of the, the Collier connection? Yeah, so after, so I mentioned my program was a year, I graduated, I, I really wanted to leave. So I was like, okay, I'm going, I actually want to come to New York City. So one thing about growing up in Albany, you do see New York City as like the Mecca. Like Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I want to live in a city one day. So I was either trying to go back to Atlanta or come to New York City. I applied for literally probably hundreds of jobs in New York City. I applied for a handful of in Boston and Mm -hmm. and the first job I got offered was here. And so I took it, but still with the mind said of like, okay, I'm going to take this for now mm-hmm. and then you to, to look. And so I, um, so I did that a lot of the, I had actually built a pretty good network at Harvard. We had a very active black student union. We had Alana, which is, um, kind of across different racial and ethnic backgrounds. All of those people bounced when we graduated, they were like, okay, I don't want to stay here. Um, people went back to where they were from or went to other places. Mm -hmm. And so I really was in a place of rebuilding my network that I had just taken kind of the school year to build. And so the first place I started, other than my job, uh, was my Spelman network. So there are a lot of Spelman women here, um, either people that are from here that come back home Mm -hmm. or people that come here for, for graduate school, Boston being a hub of education, a lot of people come here um, to get their um, post-secondary degrees. And so I was running into a lot of Spelman women, started to research the national, there's a National Alumni Association of Spelman, and essentially helped to reactivate uh, like a 10-year dormant chapter here and became the president for a couple of years. Wow. That was really kind of my first like my introduction to Boston more so than Cambridge and my Harvard network. And, um, when I really got into really like event planning, um, and, and just meeting people around the city, but also creating spaces for other people to meet each other. And that was from there, you know, many things sprung out of that. I've done dinner clubs, book club, finance clubs, like literally, Anything that I was interested in doing, I was like, oh, I'm going to make a club out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and and for me, one of the important parts of relationships, other than the connection and the relationship for me is really like an accountability group. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I say I want to do this thing. So I'm going to find other like minded people that want to do it with me. Um, It helps me to stay motivated and stay on track. So 
I led all these different clubs. I planned parties. It's funny, the other day I was going through, I realized I've had Facebook. Facebook, you know, started at Harvard. And so when I was at, in the ed school, it's when Facebook was starting to kind of catch on. Mm, Okay. But back then you could, you, it was only for college students Mm -hmm. or grad students had to have email. So that was five or so. So I was going back the other day through all my Facebook history of events that I had hosted. Mm-hmm. And I've, because a lot of times when I'm hosting an event, I'll create a corresponding kind of Facebook event page. And I'm, oh my goodness. I was like, I, I was hosting parties for anything, but <laughs> come help me celebrate my new apartment. I don't have any furniture. So come party. Cause I don't have any furniture. Like I was having, I was having like bring your own chair parties. Um, wow. I, it's just seemingly um, Harvard was really the genesis of me just becoming this person that brought people together. Mm-hmm. Now, in retrospect, it really, um, I grew up that way as well. My father was a big, we always had parties at our house. We always, he was very involved in the community. So I didn't identify it back then, but mm-hmm. I really took on a lot of his attributes and in his um, belief in kind of being a host for people. Um, and in that journey, I saw this term super connector. I was reading something and, um, you know, of course we, you know, I was calling myself a connector at the time and there was this uh, article about super connectors. It was naming like different people in the world who are super connectors and essentially I would say the difference between or what makes someone a super connector mm-hmm. um, is really that your ability to build relationships really quickly mm-hmm. and match people with opportunities really quickly. Nice. So I not only know a lot of people and a lot of people know me, mm-hmm. but I'm also, I, I put those connections into use very quickly um, and often become a resource for people that want to connect to other people, to opportunities, um, you know, to information. And I, I put a lot of time into nurturing my connections mm-hmm. and studying who I know and looking for dots that I can connect. Like it really is a, a, a thing that I take the time to do. And so, you know, I started to use that term super connector and it it kind of took off um, among people that I know. Um, But that really, it it really came from me spending really the last over a decade building these relationships and being seen, positioning myself as someone that is a a source of information and of of fun. (laughs) Now with that, I mean, that is just so amazing um, that over time, you were able to see how much this, you know, is connected to your upbringing and you truly stepping out uh, of your comfort zone to be a bridge of, of opportunity, of network and connections for people. Others may be more introverted <laughs> um, and wouldn't necessarily see themselves as being able to throw themselves out there in, in, in the same way. Like, what would you, I guess, what has been kind of like a lesson learned in, in terms of you navigating that space of uncomfortability? Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I actually consider myself an introvert. I, I now have seen this term extroverted introvert. And I mm-hmm. think that that probably describes me really well. Because there, I I get I actually get recharged and from being by myself. Mm. Like I really enjoy, like really enjoy <laughs> being by myself, being quiet, mm-hmm. writing, reading, um, and I also get energy from being around people. But that also depletes my energy, so I have yes. to be <laughs> for sure. I have to prepare for it. Mm. Um, but what I would say to, to folks that really consider themselves introverts, I I actually think the best way to connect and build your network is like one person at a time, mm-hmm. like person to person. Mm-hmm. So I don't really push people to 
you know, get your business cards and go to this networking event and or do those kind of things that can feel artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talk a lot about building communities, not networks. Mm-hmm. And for me, a lot of that comes from one-on-one interactions with people and reaching out, which I think, you know, could be more comfortable for someone that is considers themselves an introvert. Um, there's a, a book that I refer to a lot that is um, written by kind of a self-professed super connector named Keith Ferrazzi, and it's called Never Eat Alone. Mm-hmm. And because essentially what he's saying is you should always be, um, you should never eat alone, meaning you don't have to make up ways to connect with people, you should just be inviting people into the things that you already do. Mm. And so he has this really extensive network, but he's never been to a networking event. What he does is say, oh, hey, Monty, you want to go to church with me? Because that's what I do every Sunday. Or um, I'm going to be running at this park on Saturdays. Do you want to meet me there? And that's how he builds his connections and, and builds community. And I really subscribe to that because for me, what's been my experience is that the most fruitful relationships I have, even professional, are with people I've had personal interactions with. That's beautiful. And so being able to see each other as people and not the transaction, and, and I'm not even, exactly. um, against, I'm not 100% against transactional um, relationships, but I still think they need to have some basis, some foundation of understanding who each other are so that the transaction doesn't feel like someone's getting over on the other one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, so I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I like that you, it's not only about making that connection, but also nurturing it and not stretching yourself too far that you lose a sense of who you are in right. order for those relationships to exist. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't make up. So I'm big on, I do this, this workshop because the person that you want to meet is already in your network mm. because I really believe, especially somewhere like Boston where there's like two degrees of separation, even if you want. So a lot of times when we set a new goal or we're trying to reach something, we're thinking about like, Oh, I need to meet such and such, or I need to, connect with this organization and people get stuck because they don't know that person or, or know that resource. And what I do in the workshop is teach people how to actually do an audit of their current network to figure out who knows the person they're trying to know or who's connected to the group that they're trying to get connected to and learn how to activate your current relationships to make, to get to new ones. And so at the end of that workshop, I do these kind of, five tips that I have for staying connected on the go. And one of them is um, doing things, inviting people to things in groups. So Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I'm an extrovert, introvert. I like my alone time. um, And I also recognize that I need to stay connected to my friends and and colleagues. And so something that I do a lot is I, I invite people I invite multiple people to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it helps me to make sure I'm staying connected with folks. It also takes me out of, I'm not, it takes some of the pressure off of me to, to be the only, it takes some of the pressure off of me to be the only source of information or entertainment or whatever it is at this particular thing. So Mm -hmm. if I'm going to, um, a networking event or a social event and I invite five of my friends, whether or not they're all friends with each other, I get to see all these friends and we get to catch up, but then they also get to meet each other. And now they're expanding their network and, you know, it just becomes this way of me to do connecting in a, in not a contrived way. Like I, I was already going to this event. These are people that I really know. I'm just creating the conditions for people to, to um, meet other people. 
you know, with me still kind of being the genesis of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I have friends now that are friends with each other and do things without me. And I'm, and I'm okay with that because they've met because I've invited them all to something. And that's, that's a good point because <laughs> sometimes, um, when people are very, uh, overly reliant on, I would say clicks, um, and wanting to move as, as a click when, you know, one member or a few members kind of like veer off, sometimes they may take it personal. Um, and it's truly admirable that you're leveraging just the things that you choose to immerse in to really be that for others. And you're okay. Like you're, it's not a, um, it's, it's, it's organic and it's not a sense of controlling their relationships but creating the environment for it to just really evolve. That's, that's, yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah. So on, on this, um, with you being a transplant, uh, to the area and while you have definitely, I, I would say earned your stripes, uh, to, <laughs> to claim, um, to claim Boston, um, since you've been there for over a decade now, um, there have been, you know, points of internal conflict that other transplants have felt, especially transplants of color, when they move to an, another city and wanting to connect with other people um, with their identity, whether it's a faith-based community, whether it's across um, race. Um, and I remember when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I had recalled an article that I came across where this uh, this woman had moved to Harlem and she felt like, well, am I contributing to gentrification with me being here? And I still want to find that sense of community and space. So how have you been able to, um, I guess, move beyond that feeling of, uh, of stuck? And what would you advise other transplants that maybe haven't found their, their footing and their niche within the, the current space that they're in. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I read something similar about this question about, you know, we often associate gentrification with white people, mm-hmm. but it's really an income thing. I mean, it, they're, they're, a lot of it the, is, to, is a lot of times white people, but it's also about people with a higher income and more resources you know, pushing people out of a neighborhood and young black professionals do that sometimes as well. Like we'll move to the new hot up and coming areas also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, a challenge that ends up coming up in Boston and I'm sure it happens in other places is definitely this unfortunate divide between transplants of color and native Bostonians Mm. Uh, because there is a feeling sometimes among Native Bostonians that transplants get access to resources, get elevated in a way that Native Bostonians don't um, and are able to move through the city differently because we don't have, we might have the the knowledge, but we don't have the baggage Got it. that Got it. Bostonians have. You know, Boston has a deep, deep history around segregation and racism and things that still are very pervasive here. Mm-hmm. And so me as someone coming here, I know it, but I don't have the same emotional attachment to it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's big here is neighborhoods. And you can tell, you know, if I name a neighborhood who makes up that neighborhood, like what groups make up that neighborhood and throughout history, particularly for some neighborhoods, black people just couldn't go. It wasn't safe for them to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now a lot of those neighborhoods have more people of color living in them. And they're also neighborhoods that aren't, frankly, poor white people have been gentrified out of as well. And so they have the trendy restaurants and et cetera, et cetera. And so as a transplant, you know, you'll come here and you'll just go to those places because you don't, care like you you may know that but you're like okay that was in the past whereas Mm -hmm. there are folks from here that still won't go to those places because 
they know the, you know, they might have experienced, they might have been old enough to experience it yeah. or they were told by their family, don't go there, et cetera. And so I tend to actually agree for the most part. Um, I've definitely heard even with me that there are people that feel like I get elevated because I'm a transplant. And I think that the way that I've process it and explain it to people is there is some truth to it, but not because, not simply because I'm a transplant. If you aren't from a place and you move there, for the most part, you're moving there to do something. Like I came here to go to school. People come here for jobs. I don't have family here. So I didn't come here to just set up shop and live. Like I came up here you know, with a, with a purpose, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. coming to Boston to get this thing done. So the way I moved through the city is in service of that purpose. Mm. All of my actions then support me building my career and my professional stance here. And because of that, those are the resources I'm typically seeking out, which might be different if I was still home in Albany and had other, had family there, siblings, et cetera, like other things that I was, um, that might be taking up my time and attention. I do think though that as a transplant, as a transplant of color in particular, um, moving into new cities and wanting to immerse yourself in that city and take part in particularly somewhere like Boston where there's a lot of development happening, there's a lot of um, a lot of changes happening that you know, you could be seen as someone that's contributing to those changes in a way that people here don't get to benefit from. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some, there are ways that you can move into a city and be respectful of the people from that city and really, I think, build relationships with them in a way that sees them as ambassadors or guides to you versus... What, so, what sometimes happens, especially because people come here, this is a very highly educated city, and people are people are coming here for um, for opportunities. And so, some the impression sometimes is that I came here to go to Harvard. I came here to go to Harvard School of Education, and then I went to work in Boston Public Schools. And I could have approached my role in Boston Public Schools as like, well, I just graduated from Harvard. Even though I was only 22, I had no work experience, uh, but I just graduated from Harvard. Um, Instead, the way that I approached it was, okay, I have this education that gave me kind of the theory, but I'm going to look to the families and kids of the school to help me to really understand the concepts and experience and then try to marry those two things. And do it in a very, in a way that's very humble and respects people, respects the people that are here who are actually living these issues day to day. And I, and I, you know, the ways that I think people can do that is learning the, learning the history of the city that you're moving into and really understanding, especially if you, particularly because Boston is not the only place, every U.S. city has some history with how people of color have been brought there and and been able to move through that city. And so, you know, understanding that history and honoring it and respecting it and, and respecting that the people that are from there may still be um, living through the effects of that history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think also getting to know the, the neighborhoods. You know, I think a lot of places are, you know, you, in Boston you have neighborhoods and the city you have Burrows, like those are things that really define a place. And a fun way that I actually think to get to know a city and rest and neighborhoods is through restaurants. I was gonna say through people watching. <laughs> well, and I think through food. Like you can really because if I live in a certain neighborhood and I want to learn about another one, what's a natural? There's really. I mean, I could just take the train there and just walk around that neighborhood aimlessly, but I think that a safe way to do it in a way that helps to connect you quickly is to go to a restaurant in that neighborhood and see how people, you know, one, learn the cuisine of that neighborhood. It might give you an idea of also who are the people that live there. Mm -hmm. 
also, you know, it's a place for you to start and start to see, like, okay, who is the, who, who's coming in here? You know, talk to people that work at a restaurant about what the, the neighborhood is about. Like, I, I think that food, you know, I, I center a lot of the things I do through Collier Connection around food because it's just a natural um, connection between people. I mean, it's it's a way to break down barriers, I think, faster. Yes. Um, because it's just it's just it's just intimate to eat with other people and so you know enjoying the restaurants and neighborhoods as a way to get to know um get to know neighborhoods and then I think you know I wasn't a very civically engaged person before I moved to Boston um I did the I would say kind of surface level or expected like I voted mm-hmm. I I wasn't um I, I moved here when I was um, 21, so, you know, I hadn't been voting for that long, but, you know, I voted, I understood the, I won't even say I understood the importance of it, but I knew I was told that it was important, and um, I saw, that's what I saw as my contribution. I didn't really understand, like, neighborhood associations and local politics mm-hmm. and school boards and things like that and so you know figuring out a way as you move into a city how to learn those structures and learn how you can contribute even at your neighborhood level Mm -hmm. because to me honestly all all politics is local absolutely i agree with you on that how do you find out kind of what is going on at your local level again in a way that respects what's already happening and also you can bring kind of the perspective or expertise that you have that you may have. I've been blessed and very um, successful in Boston. And I think it's because I approach Boston in a very respectful way. And there are people that don't even, don't know I'm a transplant. People know, I say it more now because of college connection and, and what I'm trying to do to help other transplants. And there are some people that I've known for years, we're like, you're not from here. Hmm. Um, and it's because I've been very intentional about, you know, respecting. I have many critiques of Boston, <laughs> but I don't sit around and criticize it. I say, like, okay, how can I contribute to making this a better place? And, you know, I, um, I like that you have taken the time to really reflect and be intentional about your approach to connecting Mm -hmm. with the place, to connecting with the people uh, and and the cultures. And also that you gave great examples (laughs) uh, for how people can really facilitate their adjustment to a a new place um, in a, in a culturally sensitive and competent way. I, I, I really admire that. Um, Recently, I just came across this article in Forbes and it was talking about the the top places that people are moving from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surprised that people are moving from New York. Uh, so because yeah. since, you know, like since there's so much, um, when people hear New York, they think New York city, um, and you know, because of the jobs and the economy, uh, but New York was definitely on that list. I believe we were number two, um, and Massachusetts was number six, uh, mm-hmm. and the article said that approximately like 56% are moving out of the state. So it didn't really um, like hone in on the hyperlocal level of, of the city. And how have you been able to leverage that gap of you know people come there and their their purpose? You know, similar to you when when you came, it's just like okay. I'm coming for this job or I'm coming to, to get this degree and then I'm leaving. I'm going back either to the place where I'm from or somewhere else that is going to serve me and, and, and feed my, my interests. How have you been able to like leverage the gap um, of, I guess, the, the flight that, that's happening um, in the city and then, I guess, in, in the state? Yeah, they, they call it the brain drain here mm-hmm. because... So many people come here and get great education. They get, I mean, Boston, and I didn't really, I didn't know this until I went to work for the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce that Boston 
is such a center of industries. Like a lot of the major industries are in Boston and or based in Boston. And so including the the tech space, like outside of San Francisco, Boston is actually the next biggest hub. And so, um, you know, people come here, they get these experiences, they get the education and leave. And it's a crisis for many reasons with my chamber hat on, it's particularly a crisis for the business community. There's a real talent issue and a lot of conversation around the state around how to attract and retain talent. Mm. And if you ask people, you know, why they're leaving, some of this is anecdotal and some is data shows. Housing is definitely an issue, the cost of housing. Boston has a shot up there, up there with New York and SF and um, DC and places like that as far as the cost, and it's and it's only getting more expensive. I think the other big issue here is our transportation system is falling apart. Um, we have the oldest, literally the first. Uh, train system in the country and it just hasn't kept up with the 21st century Mm. and so even in this past month we've had trains derail Um, a lot of it's a big conversation and it's coupled with the housing issue because Boston's expensive so people have to move to the outskirts of Boston including myself but then you can't get back into the city because the transportation system is so bad. Wow. And so that is um, something that is really becoming, and that's a statewide issue, and really becoming a bigger issue. And then the other thing is Boston's reputation and reality around um, being welcoming, and not even just to people of color. Like Boston, and period, People feel like it's unwelcoming. It's hard to penetrate. If you're not from here, it's hard to to get in, you know, to circles and know what's going on. And then there's a whole nother layer of being a person of color here. Mm -hmm. And um, not, not only people not being welcoming, but you literally, like, not being shut out of opportunities here because you don't have you know, generations of a family that's owned a company or there just isn't a lot of that here with people of color. And so, you know, people choose to to leave and go to, and though the two issues that I mentioned initially are really are true, people move to just as expensive places from Boston. Hmm. And I think that if it was um, more welcoming, the other, the, the fourth piece is actually not being seen as a fun or cool place either. And not having, you know, the nightlife of other places, not having the cultural opportunities that reflect, you know, the types of music that people want to hear or um, experiences that they want to have. Because I think people move. I'm actually surprised that New York's so high on that list. Um, I was too. <laughs> Because, you know, New York's been expensive since, been it since, since. Exactly. <laughs> but people still will go there because, like, you want the experience of being in New York and you feel like it's a trade-off. You'll live in a small space to be able to have access to what's there. Same with places like L.A., San Francisco. But with Boston, you don't have that cool factor either. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of those things mixed together, I think. Um, draw people out what I've some of what I've been doing um, particularly with through the chamber we piloted last year and I'm working on it again for this year is this festival called fierce urgency of now and that the acronym is fun it just it, it literally just so happens to be fun but fierce urgency of now <laughs> fierce urgency of now is a quote from Dr. King from both a phrase from Dr. King from the I Have a Dream speech as well as other speeches where essentially he was talking about 
the urgency in which things need to be addressed, that we can't keep saying we're going to do stuff tomorrow or later or when we have this resources, when we have this, like we need to address it now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really the point and the premise behind the festival is we have a serious issue in Boston around the experience that millennials of color in particular have here. We need to address this. Other than the moral and civic issues, it's a business issue. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. There's not going to be the talent that we need. Boston currently is, the workforce here is 50% millennial. So 50% of people that work here are in their 20s and 30s. And roughly almost 45% of millennials here are people of color. Wow. And so if people don't feel, and that's across, that's, that's a greater Boston stat. So that's like Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, Somerville, across. And so if people don't, if that group, so if millennials of color don't feel like they see a place for themselves in Boston, and if every company, because every company is doing this, whether they mean it or not, is saying we need more diverse talent, then you have to, you company have to care about people's experience in Boston, even outside of work. Um, because they, because you want it to be somewhere people want to be. So the festival is curated by the chamber, and it's it's the events are hosted by corporations, individuals. We have parties this year. We have a concert that's happening. We have a um, millennials of color, a, a transgender millennials of color ball. I mean, it's literally like so many different things geared towards creating spaces for millennials of color voices to be heard, mm-hmm. or their interests and culture to be reflected, and for corporations to, to step up and say, this is how we are or how we want to address this issue as ex-corporation. And so it's something that um, I'm really proud of. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, this is the second year of curating it. Mm-hmm. I think this year we're going to have it's September 4th through 8th, and we'll have, over those days, 38 events or so. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just a really a way to create a big splash and say, hey, this is, like, hey, Boston, this is an important issue. And, and I would love to, if you can, um, you might have already, but send me that article. Because those, those are the type of things that we've used to, to make the case to businesses that we need to, this conversation needs to be literally an urgent conversation because this is happening. Yes, yes. And I mean, I'm so, I, I commend you um, for like truly seeing opportunity, like wh- where there has been a gap, where there has been a void, like you've seen opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And that can be very taxing. Um, <laughs> and it can, it, it really speaks to how bold and audacious you are in in your purpose and I truly hope that that resonates with um with the listeners I was able to um see a piece that you opinion piece that you recently had in the Boston Globe and I I truly recommend it and I'll definitely link to it um when this goes live there was this one quote that really resonated with me in in the midst of like social clubs and social spaces that are popping up uh, for people of color. Also here in New York City with the Gentleman's Factory, uh, former classmate, colleague of mine, Jeff Lindor. I visited a couple weeks ago. Oh, nice. That is awesome. Yeah, he was really great. He was helpful. That is awesome. And then Ethel's Club is forthcoming. Um, And, you know, it's... Space is so important, and the fact that you even mentioned, you know, creating an opportunity for transgender millennials of color, um, they're, like, we aren't a monolith, um, and I do appreciate how there's synergy in us leveraging our platforms to do this, um, but in, in the piece, you said, black people and other often marginalized communities should build our own spaces to celebrate our cultures, strengthen our connections, and just be ourselves. However, the reality is that we live in a place where black people do not have a lot of ownership of physical spaces. Mm-hmm. So my question to you um, is, how do we create more ownership? Um, and you've been able to, to leverage that with just 
pretty much commanding the space, like showing up to pre-existing spaces. Um, but curious if you have any thoughts on how do we create more ownership of, of those spaces? Yeah, girl, I, <laughs> I, I know, I know it's a, <laughs> I, have, I have, I mean, one of the things is literally like more business ownership and more like real estate ownership and that it's, it's, it's interesting just how I've been very interested and in, in, <laughs> intrigued with my own self about just the twists and turns that my life has made. Because, again, I have my master's in education. I grew up believing that, and it's not that I don't believe this anymore, but my, my sole belief was education is the key. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to have really great teachers that loved me. I had parents that were huge public education proponents. My father was in the PTA, et cetera, et cetera. I always did well academically. I was in honors and academically talented and all that. And so I really believe that, oh, this is how you move out of poverty. This is how you get access to opportunities. You get a good education. Um, And I do still believe that's true for an individual, but I don't think it's true for communities. And so, because what happened for me, for example, I left Albany, I had great opportunities that many people that I grew up with did not have, and I'm, I just bought my first house, like, I'm comfortable, I'm, you know, thank you, <laughs> I'm at a point where, you know, I can, you know, have probably most jobs that I want. Mm-hmm. But what is that, that's doing nothing for the rest of Albany, is doing nothing for, you know, even the place, even other places that I've lived in in Boston. And when I have children, that's not, it'll, it, it may provide a comfortable life for them, but I can't pass a job down to them. Mm. And so in the last couple of years, I've started to become just more adamant about ownership and that, yes, it's great for us to want to be in the C-suite and, you know, want to be high-paid consultants or, or, or whatever, and those things are important and we deserve them. But for us to truly move our community forward, wherever community you identify with, our communities you identify with, if you don't own your businesses, if someone doesn't own the businesses, if someone doesn't own the physical spaces... You're always borrowing other people's stuff. You're always looking for other people to give permission for you to have the conversations you want to have. You're always relying on whatever interest a foundation has that year or whatever social responsibility cause a corporation has and and maybe you fit into it to fund what you're doing. And long term it's always going to just keep us at the whim of other people and like what they think is important for our community. Whereas like with Collier Connection, I wish that I could make a couple phone calls and be like, Hey, wealthy black Bostonians fund this. Like this is important for our, our so so you're making, you're making the call right now. Yeah. Hey, wealthy black Bostonian. Like, we need our own. We need our own. And, and you know, I, I haven't even really said, like, overall what I'm trying to do. But so what really, what my focus has evolved into since I started it till now, really, just to be totally honest, initially it was, like, having fun. Like, I wanted to just do events. Mm-hmm. And I... I feel like I'm a good event planner and I know how to like get people in a room and create an experience. And that is important also because we can't just always be in struggle mode. Like we need to have fun. But over time, as I was doing that, I realized um, because of this network I've built and the convening power and influence that I have, that what I'm actually doing is helping to shift the way that people of color, black people in particular, engage with, contribute to, and are valued in Boston. And doing that through event experiences, doing that through helping people to get access 
to resources and information and doing that through providing space for people to build community with each other. And you need physical spaces to do that. And so even as we have this digital, continue to have a digital boom and all that, it does not replace like human interaction. And I actually have seen with the stuff that I do that the more we have that stuff, the actually the more people are trying to get back to like actually con- con- um, connecting with people in person. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. Um, like even when I launched the, the podcast back in April, um, people weren't leaving the room. And I was I was thoroughly, you know, like just blessed by the, the presence, the intercultural presence that was there. Uh, and the main question was, when are you going to have another event like this where we can commune, where we can be in community with each other? Um, so, again, to echo what you what you shared, like virtual technology, like it's yes, we're leveraging it, but it does not. Um, it can't replace the the one on one, the human contact at all. No, it's not. And so, and so, you know, I I took all this that I have been learning, and it was like, we have to build businesses. You see other communities doing. When I'm saying we, I'm talking about specifically about Black people. And so, you see other communities do it, and. That is what you can pass on. That is why people have generational wealth is because they have actual things that they own that they can pass on to their kids and grandkids and et cetera. And so to your question about how do we do it, it's tough because there's a lot of, I don't think it's not happening because people don't want to own and don't want to have ownership. I think there are a lot of barriers that are put up. Um, you know, even at a minimum, access to capital. Yes. Like yes. who just has a down payment to put down on a multi-million dollar building or something, you know, like that is, that's probably one of the biggest barriers is we, and I'm speaking in general, just don't have a lot of wealth mm-hmm. and, and money saved up to invest in things. And so I actually, in my circle of friends, we've been talking a lot about how do we pool our resources with each other? Exactly. Like we are people that have good incomes. And so even if everyone's putting a little bit in, like how do we find ways to, to buy a building together or, you know, invest in someone's business? Um, because, you know, none of us are at the place where we can really do that on our own. So I think that's a place to start. And I know that if there's a lot of trust and other stuff involved in that, but we're going to have to start to get back to, I think, just being more collective in the way that we um, think about our community because they're, again, I'm still a very, I believe in education. It's very important. I want to see so many things happening with the school system here and other places, but this model we have of plucking a talented child out of their neighborhood and saying, okay, you will get access to this stuff. They're still going home to the same place. Mm-hmm. I know I had to deal with a lot of identity crisis because now I've had, I've seen stuff that I go back home that no one else has seen. And so like, who do I talk to about that stuff and how do I relate to people? Yes. And so if we're, if we're not building each other, building the whole community up, it's really hard to, you know, you feel, and that's, you know, that's like a first world problem, but you feel like out of place. Correct. Um, Correct. And so, um, so yeah, so that's what I was saying in there, in that article, in the, in the op-ed piece was, I actually, because what I was also trying to get across was I wasn't caping for the MFA and saying, um, oh no, I love the MFA, we should go. What I was saying was, if that is a place you want to be, you should feel that's your right. Like, you should feel like you have the right to go there. And at the same time, while we are taking over spaces and showing up in spaces, we need to be creating our own. And that's going to take more more ownership. Yeah, and, and a collective effort, for sure. 
So, I mean, Sheena, you have truly dropped a whole lot of gems <laughs> in this segment. Um, and I do ask guests to share a tea affirmation. Um, so a quote to carry them through to, to the next segment, something that they can sip on and um, let soothe their, their spirit and their mind. So what would be your tea affirmation? Oh, I like that. <laughs> a tea affirmation. I have, um, hmm, well, I have this, this quote that I have had in different offices, like, posted up, and it's just really, um, I don't even know how I came across it, but it just has always resonated with me. It's actually a a Gandhi quote. And so it's first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Mm. And um, I feel like the modern day version of that is the marathon continues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really the same idea of you can't let other people get you off your, if you know what you're, purposes and I and I had to take the time to write down like what's my actual mission in life like regardless of what job I have regardless of what business what am I here to do and I know my mission is to provide access to resources opportunities and information for black people and so because I know that I keep that in the front of my mind um and don't let other people detract me for that so sometimes people you know, like the quote says, have ignored me. There's been people that laughed at me and said that's not possible. There are people that have tried, literally have tried to fight what I'm doing, though I feel like I'm working on behalf of them. Mm -hmm. But I know at the end of the day I'm going to win, and not like in a individual way. Like, I'm going to win for the collective. Like, we're all going to win yes. because of what I'm doing. Um, and when I, you know, discovered Nipsey and, and started hearing the marathon continues kind of, quote in the language I'm like yeah that's exactly what it is like you have to stay focused and stay true to what you're doing so those are my somehow I've just made Gandhi and Nipsey aligned but yeah that's um, <laughs> I like it I like it <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think that that's what I would leave with folks that's awesome so we have the fun event that's happening in September is there anything else that is coming up next for the call your connection and the work that you're doing yeah, so so folks can go on collierconnection.com to sign up for my email newsletter, and that's where I share what's going on. I'm also on social media, mostly active on Instagram, so it's at Collier Connection. Um, Fierce Urgency of Now Festival is September 4th through the 8th, and it will be up to 40 events focused on the experience challenges and possibilities for millennials of color in greater Boston. It's not just for millennials of color to attend because really we need everyone in the conversation. So it's not just for millennials and it's not just for people of color. And so that, um, you'll, I'll be sending out information about that. Um, also doing some stuff this summer to activate some spaces in the city that, that black people aren't typically, um, feeling welcome at. So that'll be coming out, um, throughout my newsletter. Um, and then there's a, a dinner that I do called Society 1925 where I provide this space, create this space to make connections between transplants and native Bostonians that I'm going to be restarting in the fall. So all of that on the website, through the email, listserv, um, and just trying to do more of um, this kind of stuff. Like I, I'm, I'm very thankful to you for providing this opportunity because this is stuff that is like on my heart and in my mind a lot and it helps me to to say it out loud because um, honestly it helps me to further refine what I my, my own thoughts well I can say it's it's an honor to now know you and I'm so grateful for my colleague Carlene um, who put us in in contact because I'm inspired by the work that you're doing and to be here in New York City, I'm just like, wow, well, I, I want to be plugged in with your network in order to experience Boston in a new yeah. way. Um, because what you're bringing to the space is it's very intentional. Um, and it's a level of commitment that, as you shared, people have become maybe overburdened by because of history, uh, because of their personal experiences, but you're still forging ahead uh, and moving forward in the work. So thank you so much, Sheena. I greatly appreciate it. 
Thank you, Coach Page. Thank you. Until we connect again, sip, sis, say la, share, and continue to serve.